0: 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 5, it says, Likewise, or in the same way, you younger people submit yourself to your elders, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, Seeking whom he may devour, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, underline that, after you have suffered a little while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. And so does Mark, my son, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you, all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Are you prepared? You might be thinking, prepared for what? Remember, the Apostle Peter has been trying to prepare the Christians for what he called the fiery trial that was about to come upon them. Look in chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. Peter apparently wants all Christians to prepare for the inevitable. And the inevitable is that there's a trial that's just around the corner. And for some of us, it's a fiery trial. And whether the trial takes the form of a disease or whether the the trial takes the form of unemployment, whether the, the trial takes the form of a catastrophe, where whether the, the trial takes some sort of specific form, make no mistake about it, there's going to be some trial, some crisis, some panic. And so part of the point that Peter is making is how will we experience God's grace in suffering? How will we glorify God in life's difficult situations? And by the way, you will glorify God or you won't. You will trust him or you won't. In this closing section, Peter gives three powerful exhortations, three powerful admonitions. He begins with be humble in verses 5 through 7. Then he continues with be watchful in verses 8 and 9. And then in verses 10 through 14, he encourages us to be hopeful. All three admonitions involve a state of mind, an attitude, As a matter of fact, how does the Lord want Christians to deal with trial, suffering, hardship, setback? The short answer is with an attitude of humility, with a mind that's filled with sobriety, and with a heart that is overflowing with expectancy, It was J.C. Ryle who wrote at the end of the last century, actually now it's two centuries ago, in the 1850s, he wrote how ready Christians are to be puffed up with success. He also wrote the time of success is a time of danger to the Christian mind or to the Christian soul. So why is that? Because human success offers a contrary solution to that which is being offered by God. Human definitions of success suggest that hardship and suffering or the fiery trial need never be a part of your life. And by the way, unfortunately, there are people who believe that. There are people who believe that trial, suffering, hardship, catastrophe will never be a part of your life. And guess what? They're wrong, they're deluded. By the way, if you don't have a theology of suffering, guess what? Pretty soon, hurting people won't be a part of your life. If your church doesn't have a theology of suffering, guess what? People in pain, people in crisis, people in trouble will feel like they don't belong. But clearly, they do belong. If your life is sufficiently filled with fame or fortune or freedom... You might think that you will never have to worry about anything. You might think that you can push to the front of the line, that you can spend your way through any financial storm, that if you have the the right job or the right resources, that nothing can hurt you, nothing can harm you, that if you have enough money for the best doctors that money can buy, that your dreams, your plans, your projects, your your savings will safely bring you to the opposite shore of the storms that blow through your life. Some people have way more confidence in human optimism than in biblical faith. We live in a world that offers a myriad of solutions to the problem of pain, to the problem of suffering, to the problem of hardship, but most of those solutions include the overarching statement, make the pain go away. If you're the source of pain, They get rid of you. See, we laugh, but isn't that true? A husband will say to a wife, you're the source of my pain. A wife might say to the husband, you're the source of my pain. And and guess what? In order for me to be pain-free, you've got to go away. Peter doesn't offer a single solution that includes making a run for it. Avoiding the pain, avoid, avoiding the problem, avoiding the suffering. So what is the world's solution to suffering? For the Buddhist, it means eliminating desire. The Buddhist will say, truly the world is a difficult place to live in. It's an Indian Buddhist. There are Japanese Buddhists and there are Chinese Buddhists. In other words, for the Buddhist who wants Desire to go away, it never occurs to the Buddhist that even the desire for the desire to go away becomes a desire. So how do you get rid of the desire for the desire for the desire for the desire? (laughs) If you're a philosophical naturalist, you think that heavy doses of pleasure will make the pain go away. Oddly enough, the philosophical naturalist will say it's not the absence of desire, but it's the inundation of desire that will make the pain go away. Most people just simply want the pain to go away. They want to prolong pleasure. But for the Christian, the presence of suffering, the presence of hardship, the presence of crisis becomes the opportunity to trust the Lord, to rely on His grace and His mercy. Let's pause for a moment and ask ourselves the really hard questions. Does the presence of pain or suffering or hardship Or trial mean the absence of God's favor or the absence of God's goodness or the the absence of God's grace? Does this mean that God has abandoned his children or removed his umbrella of protection? Peter's answer is not only no, but how could you possibly have thought that? In the Old Testament, there is a particularly moving passage that describes God's heart towards his children. He says, I've engraved you on the palms of my hand. Not just engraved your name, but engraved you. How is such a thing possible? How can an eternal and an infinite God create a mechanism whereby you are permanently tattooed in such a place that there is never a moment that the Lord can look metaphorically at his hands and not see you and not see your circumstance? The Old Testament says a mother, it's possible a mother might under extraordinary circumstances be able to forget their child, but God will never forget you. And so Peter says, we're to continue in hope. We're to continue to be encouraged. We're to continue to believe that God is at work in our lives. And that's why it says in verse 5, likewise, you younger people submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If any apostle, if any leader knew about the pitfalls of pride and the need for humility, it was the big fisherman. Humility, by the way, is a major theme in this letter to struggling Christians. When Peter writes, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. The suspicion still remains the same. Well, what if the elders don't know what they're talking about? After all, they're old Now, remember what Peter has already done throughout this book. Peter has talked about submission to the civil authorities, submission of slaves to masters, submission to wives to husbands. All of those discussions have already taken place. And remember, the discussion has already also taken place. Do you have to submit to evil and wickedness and sin? Remember, there are prohibitions and limitations even to these. Does this mean, likewise, you younger people, if the older person asks you to do something illegal or immoral that, that somehow obligates you to do it? Of course not. The expression submit, again, is the word hupo, tagete. The expression isn't ambiguous or vague. It simply and literally means to place oneself under the authority or the leadership of the elder or the minister. Remember, in the first four verses, the admonition has been to the minister. And now the admonition is to the rest of the congregation. In the very next sentence, Peter says, yes, all of you, be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility, submission to civil authorities, slaves to masters, wives to husbands, older younger to the older. And now he says, okay, look, just in case anyone has any idea that submission isn't a part of your life, yes, all of you, be submissive to one another, be clothed with humility. By the way, clothing oneself is always an act of the will. You know, it's wonderful about being Grandparents with new grandbabies, you'll notice something. Grandchildren can't change themselves. Guess who has to change them? Whatever adult happens to be handy. Children have this, and I think it's a wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong. Whenever grandchildren, you know, do it in their diapers, here's what I do. I go, thank you, Jesus, that their intestines are working. Little stomach is, is, Is uh, absorbing the food. It's going through the intestines. Aren't you glad your little kidneys and your little intestines, everything is working. Isn't that glorious? It's all about perspective, isn't it? Each and every child sometimes comes to a place in their life where they can change themselves you have to decide to put clothes on and some of you are better at it than others. (laughs) Do you ever wake up and go, what am I going to wear to church today? Oh, what am I going to wear? I just simply ask, you know, like I've told you over and over, I wear the pants in the family and every morning she tells me which pair to put on. (laughs) It makes it easy for me. By the way, humility... Always, in part, is an act of the will. Humility doesn't come easily or naturally. The instruction is general and universal when it says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. All really does mean all. It means all sexes, all socioeconomic classes. All of us are to be engaged in the voluntary expression of humility towards one another for Christ's sake. And that, by the way, the expression be clothed with humility gives us a picture of a first century slave who wraps himself or herself with a towel or an a- apron. As a matter of fact, be clothed with humility is all one word in the original language. Egg, come, bo, sauce, they. It's a combination word with a prefix, a root word and a suffix. And the picture is wrap yourself with a towel. Does that sound familiar at all to you? Do you remember the night that that Jesus was betrayed just the day before his arrest and execution. Wasn't there a scene that took place in an upper room where Jesus wraps himself with a towel? He girds himself with a towel. In John 13, verses 13 through 15, remember Jesus said, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Isn't it interesting that in Peter's experiences, there is a permanent indentation of all that Jesus has said and done. Peter remembers that the way up is the way down. And the way down is the way up. Remember Jesus himself said, If I be lifted up, I'm going to draw all people to myself. Alan Stibbs writes, The exhortation is not to feel humble or even to pray for humility, but to act on it. And by the way, if you wait for the feeling, I can almost rest assured that the feeling will never come. And guess what? You can pray till you're blue in the face for humility. But at some point, you're going to have to make the decision to defer. You're going to have to make the decision to defer. And by the way, what does that mean to be submissive to one another? In in one way, it must mean the decision to defer. In another way, it must mean that we acknowledge and we respect and we honor one another. In what sense does that take place? We Acknowledge one another, we honor one another, we respect one another. What this must mean in part is to defer to one another's gifts, to defer to to one another's gifts and unique callings that take place by the lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you seriously think that there's nothing that you could ever learn from a child? Oh, grandchildren are teaching me beaucoup de lessons. For my French-speaking people, that means lots of lessons. Isn't it funny what they're amused by? And isn't it funny what they're entertained by? Isn't it funny what makes them very, very happy and very, very sad? I asked uh, my grandmother. She um, had her 100th birthday. And I had the privilege of... me. I'm the oldest grandchild in my family. And um, I had the privilege of taking my grandchild and placing my grandchild in my grandmother's lap. Can you imagine? How often in life do you get to spend time with someone who's over 100 years older than you? But you know what Peter is doing? Peter is placing the entire congregation into the lap of his own experience. He cites the scripture to support his exhortation. In Proverbs 3.34 it says, Surely he scorns the scornful, but he gives grace to to the humble. That's Proverbs 3.34. The Lord scorns the scornful, the proud, the high-minded, the self-absorbed. The Lord God resists the proud, the Bible says. The Lord opposes those who look down on others. The Lord opposes those who feel superior to others. The Lord opposes those who discriminate against others. The Lord opposes those who are prejudiced and those who are boastful. And so if you stop and you think about it, if you are in the business of oppression, you are in a business that's doomed to fail. The Bible says, if you exalt yourself, the Bible says that the Lord will oppose you. If you elevate yourself, He'll bring you down. By the word by the way, the word resist is very very interesting. In the, in the passage in verse 5, God resists the proud. You may meet, lose the meaning of it. It's anti tosatei anti tasatei It's a very strong word. It means <laughs> it means to bring out an army in battle against the enemy. It's like that very bad movie where Sean Connery goes. If they come at you with your fists, you come after them with a knife. And if they come after you with a knife, they co- you come after them with a gun. And if they, if they kill someone in your family, then you kill everyone in their family. <laughs> what? Antetaceteiae means in order to deal with a difficult problem, you bring out an army and you set that army in battle array against the enemy. Marvin Vincent writes, quote, Pride calls out God's armies. No wonder it says in the Old Testament That pride goes before destruction. The person who walks in pride, the person who walks in self-exaltation, the person who pushes forward, the person who elbows his or her way to the front of the line, the person who leaves footprints on the backs of his brothers and sisters invites God's judgment. See, you might be thinking that self-exaltation and pride is no big deal. I need you to understand this. Pride and self exaltation becomes an invitation to to God to destroy you. That's the point, to bring you down. Now, I want you to think about this, what the passage is saying. God resists the proud. I don't mean resist the proud like you resist a grandchild who goes too close to the cords on the wall and you slap her little hand and you go, no. Imagine your grandchild goes to the wall and you bring out the United States Marine Corps. Back off, little girl! (laughs) Walk away from the cord! That's the point that he's making. Armies of angels descend from heaven to resist you. But God gives grace to the humble. And by the way, grace is the necessary ingredient to withstand the fiery trial, to withstand the difficulty or the, dis- or, or the difficult circumstance or the overwhelming hardship. I want you to think of it this way. Grace is God's unmerited favor that is freely given. But for whatever reason, humility is like like a conduit, like a tube. Humility becomes almost like a secret tunnel that allows the rivers of grace to flow inside of your heart. Now do you understand that the way up is the way down, and the way down is the way up? Going to Nona's house, you discover something each and every time. Good meatballs have to have good ingredients. Meat the ball will require a fresh ground beef, Italian pork sausage, in just the right portions. Make no mistake about it. There's fresh ingredients and pungent spices and bread, crumb, and egg. Yeah, that's right. We put egg in our meatball. But the guess of what? No meat, no meat the ball. The essential ingredient... In order you to, to face life's difficulties and life's trials, and life's suffering and life's circumstances, you need massive, massive, massive amounts of grace. And remember, that means favor. That means blessing but it means favor and blessing that's from God. And so the person who decides to wrap himself or herself in the towel of service, the person who wraps themselves in the clothing of humility, the person who wraps themselves become a a living burp rag for the baby. This is the same towel that's meant to clean feet and dry feet. This towel is your God-given instrument to bring you to a place of submission and humility and worthwhileness. God's grace will give you the grace that will bring favor and blessing beyond your comprehension. The humble person will bring forth fruit in a rich harvest. The fruit of God's Holy Spirit will manifest in your life. These overwhelming rivers of grace will become inside of you love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and self-control. Not only that, but the humble person filled with grace receives the assurance that God's looking after you. And that God's caring for you. Have you ever thought to yourself, who will take care of me? Who will take care of me when my grandma's gone? Who will take care of me when my mother and father are gone? Who will take care of me when my husband's gone, when my wife's gone? Who will take care of me? My 100-year-old grandmother is cared for by my 73-year-old aunt, my zia, tia. There's a mutual ministry that God has allowed to take place in people's lives. Clearly, the Lord causes all things to work together for good for those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose, it says in Romans 8.28. So humility and grace... Bring exactly what's necessary in order to stand in the fiery trial. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine: 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I am meek and lowly in heart and therefore you'll find rest for your souls. And look what it says in verse 6. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. By the way, in the Old Testament, the mighty hand of God in broad categories symbolized two things. Whenever the Bible speaks of the hand of God, it is invariably either going to talk about discipline or deliverance. Because the same hand that exercises discipline is the same hand that can exercise deliverance. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 20, in Job chapter 30, verse 21, in Psalm 32, 4, it speaks over and over again of the hand of God providing a mechanism of discipline. And now I need you to remember what the New Testament says, that the Lord loves each and every son and daughter. He chastens, he disciplines every single son and daughter. There was a time when my Nona could run me down with a switch. I'm going to get you. You're not going to get away with that. Isn't it funny? There was a time in my life where I couldn't run fast enough to get away from her. And now I can't run fast enough to get towards her. Your whole life will be spent running away from someone or running into someone's arms. The hand that will discipline you will also be the comforting hand, the mighty hand that will direct you and provide deliverance for you. Clearly, there are lots of reasons to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Now think about it. Clearly, if pride is an invitation to judgment and destruction, if the only reason is that God resists the proud, you would think that that would be reason enough to reject pride, but for most of us, it isn't. Because pride is wicked and pride is deceitful and pride argues that the destruction isn't really as bad as we might think. The consequence is not as grave as we might think, but the only way to escape judgment and destruction is to humble ourselves under the disciplining and directing hand of God. And the hand of God is an expression, again, that describes God's ability to control all things, to orchestrate all things according to his own plans and purposes, and you might find yourself in a difficult or what seems like an impossible circumstance. How can I submit myself to the circumstance I find myself in? And here's Peter's admonition. He's saying, I'm not asking you to submit yourself to the circumstance. I'm asking you to submit yourself to the person who's in control of your circumstance. Is God in control of every circumstance? The same God who brought you there can keep you there or remove you. Humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God means refusing. Refusing to trust yourself and trust your resources, but to trust God and his resources. Humbling yourself means that you reject the right to govern your life. Humbling yourself means you reject the notion that personal fame and personal fortune and personal freedom is the way to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. You realize your deepest desire... Is not to continue in your sin, but to experience forgiveness of sin. To realize that your life as a rebel is over and your life as a servant of the Lord is just beginning. You're willing to accept the consequences of a life that's lived for Jesus. And once you're able to accept that, guess what happens? There's an amazing liberation that will begin to take place in your life. By the way, how does the rebel... See the hand of God. Clearly, the rebel can see the strength of God and the power of God and the sovereignty of God and the control of God. The rebel can see warning and fear and anger and wrath and judgment and condemnation. But the humble also sees all of those things. But they see something else, something more. Salvation and security, protection and care, assurance and confidence. Fallen human beings want to trust fame and fortune and freedom. So how is God's exaltation different from human success? Human success may put you in front of other people, but whatever it means to be successful with God, here's what it means, is that you'll be used by God to prepare others. And by the way, your whole life will be spent helping people in difficulty or preparing people for heaven. That pretty much is everything, isn't it? You are going to be praying and ministering and supporting and serving and loving and encouraging everything that you do, everything that you say. Listen carefully to me. Everything that you do and everything that you say is preparing other people for a fiery trial or for heaven. And look what it says in verse 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. I want you to note something. Some people don't really believe that, do they? They don't believe God cares for them. If you were to ask them, hey, let me ask you a question. Do you think God cares about you? There will be people who will say, I don't think so. He has a a lot more to worry about than me and my circumstances. By the way, is it true? Is it true that God doesn't care for them? Here's what the, the Bible says: casting all your care upon him. You know what Peter's doing once again? He's quoting the Old Testament, he's quoting David cast your care on the lord he will sustain you he will never let the righteous stumble corrie ten boom was well acquainted with fiery trials her family was incarcerated in a nazi prison camp for harboring jews her sister was killed she wrote quote worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow it empties today of all of its strength isn't that good Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. We cast all our care upon him. You know, the word cast is an interesting word. It was the word that was used to describe when you would pack an animal, you would take a blanket and you would take the blanket and you would throw the blanket on top of the beast of burden. That's literally what this means. You throw yourself on him. Now think about this. We as Christians don't simply resign ourselves to a kind of cosmic fatalism. We cast our care on the Lord. And that must mean we are free to cast our care, our fear, our anxiety, our stress, our daily struggle. It's absolutely okay for you to take it and throw it on top of the big shoulders of an everlasting and eternal and self-existent God. You deal with this, Lord it's not my problem. It's your problem. It's like that stupid story where the guy goes, he's a million dollars in debt. And he he says to another person, I'll I'll pay you a million dollars if you'll worry for me. He goes, done. And then he came time to collect the bill and he goes, where's my money? He goes, it's not my problem. It's your problem. Yeah, we laugh. In other words, hey, you simply move the circumstance to another person I need to point one more thing out to you. Remember, we've already learned that there's two kinds of problems and sufferings and trials and circumstances that we face. Invited and uninvited. Things that we have no control over and things that we do have control over. Can we cast our cares on the Lord even if it's our fault? What do you think the answer is? I think that the answer is yes. It takes an act of the will to consciously, deliberately, specifically throw your anxieties over to God and trust that he cares. Now, I want you to understand something. God doesn't simply care when it wasn't your fault. He cares even when it is your fault. Do you know why? Because you can turn to him in repentance. You can say, Lord, it was my fault. And I am totally, fully, specifically to blame. If you want to ascribe blame. But I want to turn from my sin. And I want to turn to you. And I want you to take care of me in this circumstance, and I'm willing to embrace the consequences as you've prescribed, knowing that having a right relationship with you and friendship with you and fellowship with you is way more important than anything else. So what then do I do with the fiery trial what then do i do with the difficult circumstance again the question has already been asked and answered we're to expect suffering in 1st peter 4:12 we're to rejoice in suffering in 1st peter 4:13 our suffering provides a means of fellowship with the lord in chapter 4 verse 13 we identify with the lord jesus Our suffering means that we can glory in the future in verse 13. Our suffering brings the ministry of the Holy Spirit in chapter 4, verse 14. Our suffering enables us to glorify the Lord in chapter 4, verse 14. So how do you do that? How do you cast your care upon him? Let's be very specific and very fundamental. Pray something like this. Bow your head and say, dear Lord, you know about my trial. You know about my circumstance. You know about my fear. You know about my anxiety or my discouragement. You know when I feel too weak to continue. You know that everything that I'm concerned about, even the trivial things and the empty things and the worldly things, Lord, you know that most of what I'm concerned about right now has nothing to do with Jesus and has nothing to do with eternal life. And for this very moment, I trust you. I trust you for the necessary strength. I trust you for the wisdom and the necessary love to submit to you. I trust you for the humility that's going to be necessary to embrace your grace. I'm willing to embrace pain and humility, knowing that you won't withhold your peace and your joy. If you pray that prayer, he'll hear you. And so not only do we put on the mind of humility, but sobriety. Look at verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Just like there are people who don't believe, they don't believe, they don't believe that God cares for them, they also don't believe that the devil can do them any harm. By the way... Is the devil a real danger? Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Remember? I've said it over and over again. Satan wants you to sift you. Don't worry about that. I'm not one of those people who sees a demon behind every bush. Jesus warned Peter that Satan was coming after him. And by the way, remember what Peter's problem was? pride i don't need anyone's help to stand by you jesus there's no fear there's no army there's no nothing that's going to keep me to be in the right place at the right time in order to help you when you underestimate your enemy your enemy will whisper in your ear you don't need to pray you don't feel like praying Don't open your Bible. Look at you. You're opening your Bible and you're looking at the pages and you're looking at the words and the words are running together. They don't mean anything. You're not understanding what you're watching. You're not listening. It doesn't matter. You don't need to pray. You don't need to stay awake. You don't need to read your Bible. You don't need to keep company with Christians. Satan accuses the children of God. Satan means adversary. In the original language, it meant someone who would promote a legal opposition. In other words, they would accuse you of something and they would take you to court for the purpose of taking something away from you. The word devil means slanderer. And Satan accuses the children of God. He slanders the children of God. Warren Wiersbe suggests that Satan uses the lips of unsaved people to accuse us falsely. You see your mother. You see your father. You see your brother. You see your sister. You see your neighbor. You see your family member. You see your friend. You see their lips moving, but you hear Satan's voice. Satan comes as a serpent to deceive in Genesis chapter 3. And here in 1 Peter chapter 5, he comes like a lion to devour. And the word devour is one of those interesting words. On the History Channel, they have a program called Swamp People. These are people from Louisiana. These are the Cajun people. They cruised by you looking for alligator. Have you ever seen an alligator eat something? It just swallows it whole. Once it gets inside of the mouth, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about hair, teeth, bone. It just goes Have you ever seen a lion devour something? You ever watch the animal planet and watch as a lion breaks a gazelle's neck and then begins to feed on its victim? Lions prowl quietly, they watch, they wait, they choose victims who are alone, they choose victims who aren't alert, they choose a victim that they can isolate and then devour. If Satan can isolate you from the Bible, the promises of God, if Satan can isolate you from prayer, if Satan can isolate you from friendship and fellowship with other, with other Christians, if Satan can, can effectively channel you to one side or the other, you become easy prey. Sometimes the lion's roar will generate enough fear to drive the victim into the jaws of another member of the pride. Isn't that interesting that a group of lions are called a pride? Peter knows the truth. Peter knows that God is at work in the trial of life. Peter knows that there is a devil who wants to isolate you from God and the word of God and the promise of God. Satan is at work to pry us from the Lord Jesus and so what can Christians do to defeat the devil? Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, keep your eyes open. C.S. Lewis wrote, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turning, without milestone, without sign push. So be sober means be clear-headed. And by the way, when Jesus warned Peter He said, stay awake and pray with me. What did he do? He fell asleep and wouldn't pray with him. Once again, we're learning a valuable lesson from Peter. Jesus told me, he warned me, To stay awake and stay alert and I wasn't awake and I wasn't alert and I underestimated my enemy. I overestimated my own ability. Be sober minded means clear headed. Be clear headed about your enemy. And one of the reasons why we cast our care on the Lord is because he, we really do have an enemy. Clearly, sobriety also means not blaming the devil for everything. Don't think the devil is behind every election. Don't think that the devil is behind every flat tire or every bronco loss. It is true that Satan has the ability to inflict pain and suffering, though. Warren Wiersbe writes, A lady phoned me long distance to inform me that Satan caused her to shrink seven and a half inches. While I have great respect for the wiles and powers of the devil, I still feel we get our information about him from the Bible. Do you know what we really know about the devil? It's what the Bible tells us about him. That's the only thing we can safely know. Peter says in verse 9, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Here's what the apostle says, respect him, resist him, recognize him. And Peter would have saved himself a lot of trouble if he would have simply obeyed Jesus, stayed awake, refused to fall asleep. But he didn't recognize Satan the night that he showed up. And when the trial shows up, when the fiery trial shows up, then I'm wondering if you will be alert and vigilant. Remember, James says exactly the same thing in James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Respect him. Resist him. Recognize him. What do you mean by respect him? I mean, make no mistake about it, you're making a huge and terrible mistake if you think that you can go toe-to-toe with the devil. Your job is not to go toe-to-toe with the devil. Your job is to submit to God, resist him. One Bible writer said, before we can stand before Satan, we must bow before God. Peter resisted the Lord and ended up submitting to Satan. I want you to think about that for just a moment. If you resist the Lord, invariably you will submit to Satan. But if you submit to the Lord, you will resist Satan. And how do we resist him? By remaining steadfast in the faith. And what is our faith? Jesus loves us. Jesus died for us. Jesus is the satisfying solution to all of our sin. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is able to intercede on my behalf. And he says, know this knowing the same sufferings are by your brotherhood in the world. We are a part of a gigantic family that's found everywhere. And humility and sobriety become the lessons that all of us have to learn. And then look at this, cultivate expectancy. He ends his passage with this, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while, underline that perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Peter calls the Lord the God of all grace. What does Peter mean by that expression? After you have suffered a while. It could mean the terrible tragedy that was falling on the Christian family in the first century when state-sponsored persecution and elimination became rampant. What else could it mean? It could mean invariably the very real trial that will at some point in your life affect you. The Lord will allow a fiery trial or a difficult circumstance. But remember why he's doing it. It's to shed his grace upon you. It's to perfect you. It's to grow you. It's to mature you. Sometimes in the face of difficulty, (laughs) we wear a sign around our neck. Temporarily out of order. What do you mean? I'm in this huge trial. I'm in this difficult circumstance. I'm in this fiery furnace. Out of order. Hey, I can't help you. I got my own problems. Sometimes we need to turn the sign around. On the other side, it reads, your grace is sufficient. And in my weakness, you will perfect strength. What do you give when you don't have anything to give? You give confidence. And expectancy that there is a real God who will perfect you. By the way, He makes us perfect. The word translated perfect (laughs) doesn't mean without flaw. Do you know what it means? It's a word that's elsewhere translated to equip for service. It literally comes from a root word which means to mend nets. Something torn in your life? Has something been ripped away? Is there a big hole where you used to be able to function and catch things for God's glory and for the benefit of the world? How does God repair the rip in your net? How does God take the frazzled and the torn and the broken and make it useful for himself? Even though you may not see it, the trial becomes the very instrument whereby the nets are are sown back together. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 11, it says, To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why? Remember what glory is. It's the sum and the substance of all of his attributes. Remember what his dominion is. It's his sovereignty and circumstances, which means you can trust him and in verse 12 it says by Silvanus elsewhere translated Silas our faithful brother I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand What's the true grace I'm the head not the tail No that's not the true grace the true grace is no pain no suffering no problems that's not the true grace the true grace is real pain, real suffering, real problems, but there's a real Savior who can see you through. In verse 13, it says, she who is in Babylon elect together with you, greets you. Is this really Babylon? Maybe. Is this a code word for Rome? Maybe. Remember, there's difficulty, there's state-sponsored annihilation. If a Roman citizen or a Roman prefect or a Roman governor or if a Roman official picks up 1 Peter and reads verse 13, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Does he have any idea what this means? Not really. Is this a code word for Rome? Maybe. Is this truly Babylon? Maybe. Maybe. How are we to think about this? Remember what Babylon was. It was the place where the children of Israel were taken captive until such a time as a liberation would come and reunite them in the land. What is Peter saying? Right now, you might be a refugee in a strange world and in a strange place. Right now, you might be in a circumstance where you feel like you don't belong Make no mistake about it. This world is a temporary place that serves a temporary function because you will be reunited in an eternal place to live forever with the true and living Savior. That's the point. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. I hate to disappoint you, but in the ancient world, men would kiss men... And women would kiss women. So this isn't permission for you to smack someone on the lips as you're walking out the door who doesn't, isn't your wife or isn't your husband. If for some reason you want to kiss somebody, make sure you ask their permission. Whatever else it means, it does mean this. Display affection for one another. And it says peace to you. All of you who are in Christ, Christ Jesus. Again, the world is roughly divided between two people. Those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. If you are in Christ, you'll experience the peace of God and you'll experience peace with God. If you're not in Christ, the turmoil will continue to churn. The difficulty will continue to come. The pride will be your only resources. Sobriety and vigilance and hope won't be a part of your tool bag. But if you are in Christ, guess what? You have the ability to please God. You have the ability to act in a way that is honoring to God you'll have a way to address the difficulties that will come make sure you're in Christ that too is a simple prayer let me pray that for you as well Heavenly Father Lord for that person who is empty and estranged where their life is not filled with humility but pride not vigilance and sobriety, but carelessness. Not expectancy, but in a vague hope that everything will work out just fine. Lord, I pray that they would come to a place where they would realize that sin is a very big problem. But that's, and that Satan lives to deceive and distort the truth. But Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that Jesus Christ, the Lord died in our place. That his sacrifice is the satisfying solution to the problem of our sin and his resurrection is not just a historical fact, but it's the comforting certainty that he's alive and that he can forgive us and change us and grow us and mature us and provide for us no matter how difficult life is. Lord, we pray that we would learn these lessons. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who grow up. Lord, we pray that we would voluntarily submit ourselves under the mighty hand of God. For discipline if necessary. For direction if necessary. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.